0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring the best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. Whereas I record this, we're under quarantine, so a lot of people aren't going door-to-door. But if people are, usually that will include these people called Mormons. And, you know, they come to your door, they seem like some of the nicest people on Earth. And really, they are. Generally, most Mormons, I think, you would love to have as neighbors. And they won't just tell you, we're Christians just like you are. But is that really true? Do Mormons believe something different than we do? And what's it like growing up in Mormonism? Um, I, I saw a book being sent, being talked about to me by a publisher... And it's a story about coming out of Mormonism, and really, that's the kind of thing I'm also interested in, because when it comes to these kinds, Jehovah's Witnesses are very fun, I think, to dialogue with, because they stick to the Bible, but Mormonism is just a fascinating group to study, because it's so different. And we've had <clears throat> we had Lynn Wilder on, we've had others come on, Corey Merrill come on, other others talking about coming out of Mormonism, where now we got the next one, and that's uh, Lisa Brockman with her book, Out of Zion. She's married to Dennis and has five passionate kids. She's a 27-year missionary with Crewe, a spiritual director, and a graduate of Renovare Institute for Christian Spiritual Formation. She was raised in a devout Mormon family in Salt Lake City, Utah, and adores them. She attended East High, the film side of high school a musical, A Small Claim to Fame. She loves journeying with people through their spiritual highs, lows, and wonderings, and is passionate about people encountering the biblical God, who offers a love and freedom that has revolutionized her life. She loves to create tantalizing culinary creations for her fans, and they spend endless hours at a table sharing life and stories. The beach is her oasis. Watching the University of Utah, Lisa began dating Gary, a baseball player who called himself a Christian. This relationship catapulted her into a search she had never envisioned for her life. Her determination to prove the truth of Mormonism, she introduced to the love and grace of a biblical God who radically changed the trajectory of her life. Lisa, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast.
1: Thank you, Nick. It's great to be with you.
0: Normally, at this point, I ask my guests, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing in case we don't know who you are, but... That's kind of your story. So let's just go ahead and jump right on. One of the things that caught my attention when you talk about your bio was Gary, a baseball player who called him Christian. I, I was kind of wondering what you meant by that last phrase. I mean, do you think he wasn't a Christian, or was it just what a Christian was? what's new to you, or what?
1: Mm, that's a great question. Well, for me, reformanism in Utah, mm-hmm. I believed we were Christians. We had the name Jesus Christ in the name of our church, so. Mm-hmm. I had never differentiated between myself and other people of other faiths, Christian faiths. I just thought we were all Christians. And Mm so when he called himself a Christian he explained to me what he meant by one who has a personal relationship with the biblical god and started making these distinctions and then calling himself born again which I'd never mm-hmm. and so when i say he called himself a christian it was very different than what i had always how i had used the word christian
0: mm-hmm. now we'll get into a little bit about your growing up and being raised but the thing i find fascinating is he got you started by just asking you one question. Now, a mm-hmm. lot of my apologetics friends listening to Michelle parsing, ooh, what's that one question? What's the great stump about missing <laughs> that, that we are missing? We need to learn better. Seeing here with bated breath wondering, and I think if that's what we're thinking, they're going to be disappointed. Because what, <laughs> what was the one question?
1: How do you know the church is true?
0: Please, don't you have the burning in the bosom for that, Lisa? Isn't that how you know it's true?
1: It is. And I did. And that was my answer to Gary. Because mm-hmm. I've experienced the burning in the bosom, and I know that it's true.
0: I've heard some ex-Mormon that the burning in the bosom, if you experience it, is one of the most dramatic experiences you'll ever have.
1: Mm-hmm. It's very dramatic. Mm-hmm. It's real. It's bodily. Extremely, um, it's extremely, it's an extremely charismatic experience.
0: Mm-hmm. But this experience wasn't enough at this point, was it?
1: It wasn't. As Gary continued to follow up with uh questions I've ever been asked in my entire life, mm-hmm. the burning in the bosom that I've experienced. mm mm-hmm wouldn't satisfy his aunt it was it wasn't a satisfying response for Mm. either myself or Gary. Mm.
0: Now those are other questions, those might be the kinds of questions that me and my listeners might think that they normally ask Mormons, right? Mm.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. He asked me after do you how do you know the church is true? He went on to ask me if I can historicity of Mormonism. Mm. And I've never even thought about defending my church historically because I'd been so trained to just believe that it's true and those mm. things like city and authenticity of Joseph Smith as a prophet of God, that was the next question mm. to defend that. I'd never ever thought about those things. I didn't even know those were categories essentially. So mm. yes, those were those were the questions that con- that began to just level what I'd felt like was such a firm foundation.
0: You know, the sad thing is, I think there's probably a lot of Christians in our churches today who could answer the same questions about the Christian church today.
1: You're right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's my experience as well. Mm -hmm. Even as I've been sharing my story since my book released, Mm -hmm. there are people who will approach me almost after every time I speak and share with me that they've known Jesus far longer than I have, yet they don't experience what they sense in me with Mm -hmm. as an intimacy and knowledge and Mm -hmm. understanding and I think when you grow up in an environment that I did I had to test I had to research I had to work through so much material to come to a place of understanding Mm -hmm. that it did set me into a type of relationship with God that very much engages the mind, addition to the body.
0: Yeah. Now, if Gary had started off the way many of my friends probably in this field would start started off with all the other questions, blessing first, do you mm-hmm. think you would have responded the same way?
1: No. Mm-hmm. I would have just had a knee-jerk response. Well, those things ultimately don't matter as much as the burning in the bosom. Mm-hmm. But there was something about him asking me, how do you know the church is true? And then it with those questions that the sum of them, the sum of the whole of them just began to shatter mm-hmm. that firm foundation of knowing.
0: Yeah, at the same time, I don't think it also it for the door-to-door visits that we might get because you also had known Gary for some time, so... You knew he wasn't just trying to give you a stumper. He was giving you a question because he really cared about you. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Yeah, it was in the context of relationship. And I think that's really important when you're working when you're talking and dialoguing mm-hmm. with Mormons. Although you can have effective conversation with missionaries who come to your door yes. as well. Uh, let- but yes, relationship is so important.
0: But let's uh Go on, Vin, a bit further here. So it's not as if he said, How do you know Mormonism is true? And you're saying, He's right. I don't know for sure. Okay. I'm going to become a Christian now. Happened from that point on.
1: <laughs> well, I got really freaked out. It was like the firm foundation beneath me turned to quicksand. Mm-hmm. And even though I'd been in a season of rebellion against the principles of church that was Mm -hmm. sewn into me, I still believed with all my heart, mind, and soul. Mm -hmm. Never doubted. And so, Gary just put enough of a chink in that foundation that I did not want to talk to him at all. Mm -hmm. It terrified me. Uh, Don't question, we don't question, we don't um, challenge our faith. And I'd grown up hearing stories of people who had sincerely questioned Mormon doctrine and Mormonism, and but be- back in the beginnings of that, I was shared stories that they'd been excommunicated for doing so. Mm-hmm. So it was deeply rooted in me mm-hmm. to not question. But so for about a month, I told, I just made it off limit. Don't talk about it. You believe what you believe. I'll believe what I believe. But as Gary and I continued to progress in our relationship and get closer, I just decided. These questions are creating dissonance, and I'm sure if I research Mormonism, I will have good responses that will confirm and just cause my faith to deepen in Mormonism. So that little bit of challenge then deposited seeds, which grew into a willingness to begin to do Mm -hmm. with Gary.
0: Okay, so what were you finding out in this Bible study, and was it a bit suspicious also with him leading you think okay well he's just you know leading me into a trap or something
1: (laughs) well i think some reason i don't remember having suspicions about him leading Mm -hmm. i just thought you know when we get into the bible we're on level playing field i think he definitely had a more experience than i did Mm -hmm. in the my experience was more in the book of mormon Mm -hmm. um but because mormons believe that the Bible is the word of God as far as it is translated correctly, and it's not just the word of God, period. Mm -hmm. I believed I was coming with tools as a Mormon to be able to get into the King James version of the Bible, which is the only one we used, and somehow bring some revelation Mm -hmm. (laughs) on my own through Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible. So I I didn't feel an inferiority, but I was also kind of arrogant.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, I'm curious in all this time if maybe you were also reaching out to, say, um, someone from the church. You might be, maybe an elder or a bishop or someone like that. Or were you just trying to tackle these on your own?
1: I was not reaching out to anybody in the church. I didn't feel like, good space for anybody to enter into that journey with me because. My experience was, don't question, Mm -hmm. you're being unfaithful if you do. Mm -hmm. And so, sadly, I didn't think that I could bring anyone into it. And I wasn't kind enough to any of my church leaders at that point to want to have brought anyone into it.
0: Mm. You know, once again, it's another great tragedy. I think too many of the people are in our own churches today think the exact same thing don't question
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yes yeah my daughter my oldest child she was 10 years old when she began to question the existence of God and I was like this is awesome (laughs) let's celebrate (laughs) like this is amazing what a journey you have ahead of you at 10 years old you're already questioning his existence Mm. that would never have been the reason from my parents or anyone in my life
0: sean mcdowell is a good friend of ours uh, of the ministry here Mm. and he's been on the show once or twice here he's the son of josh mcdowell very famous in the world and he's got a great story about When he was a teenager, I think, that he went up to his dad and said, Dad, I'm starting to doubt that Christianity is true. That's great, son! And he was just thrilled. <laughs> yeah. and I, yes. I, Go ahead. I, I think that just like you parents today who have kids, when they come up and they start asking questions, that's not time to panic. That's time to celebrate because that means your kid is taking this stuff seriously.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, yep, yeah, and there's yeah, there's no reason in Christianity to fear yeah.
0: now, so you're doing these studies with Gay. What are mm-hmm. you finding out? How are they going?
1: Well, we started with talking about the nature of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary found a Bible study about relationships, mm-hmm. and then. Initially, who is God? Who is this God that we are invited to be in relationship with, that then we can have richer relationships with each other? And so I'm thinking we're just gonna. I think part of the reason I wasn't fearful is I thought what I would find in the Bible would be well grown up learning. Mm-hmm. I just believed I believed everything in the Bible, and so. So we started talking about God on the first, and the nature of God in the first, and as that study unraveled and began to express that there's one God who always has been God, who always will be God, who is unchanging, who is not flesh and bones, but is spirit. It's like my world turned 100 degrees on its head. And I had everything I was learning in the Bible that day about the nature of God seemed to be the exact opposite of what I'd grown up believing, that God was once a man, worked his way into Godhood Mm -hmm. and exalted, and that that was my purpose, that if I was obedient and faithful and kept the laws and ordinances of the gospel, I would then exalt into Godhood. And so my God was flesh and bones, not spirit. And it was just absolutely unraveling to me and I got super angry at Gary and I got angry at the Bible and I just like Gary said God is spirit as he took me through the study I was like God is not spirit God is flesh and bones and it really unearthed me I would just be yelling in an instant I was so angry and defensive and he took me to John four twenty four, and it said God is spirit and I was like, "There's got to be a way around that. That's just let's just mess with grammar or something because that is not true. And as I looked in the Joseph Smith translation of John 4:24, it totally deleted that phrase, and that was the beginning of deep dissonance within my soul, mind, and my body. that first Bible: study. And
0: this was I'm not trying to date you or anything, but this was. Before the age of the internet, I'm guessing also right.
1: Yeah. Yep. It was.
0: I understand the internet has not been very friendly to groups like Mormonisms.
1: Uh, yeah. No. It's been quite exposing. So.
0: Yeah. You. Know, you're,
1: so that was the first study, yeah. and the next study talked about the nature of people. And that was equally disturbing to me because I believed that I'd had a divine nature, not a sinful nature. Mm. And as the Bible study took us into the word of God, all have sinned and fall short of the word of God, that our nature is not basically good, Mm. that that we can't save ourselves, that we have no power Mm -hmm. to keep any amount of enough ordinances of the gospel to make ourselves worthy of eternal life. And that was just, again, 180 degrees from what I knew to be true.
0: Yeah. Yeah, You know, when you're talking about the whole thing about the nature of God, I I just remember always Lorenzo Snow's couplet, as man thought as God is, man may become. And me and my Christian listeners who might not be familiar with Mormonism, I bet they could be going, Mormons believe that?
1: Yeah. I know. They keep it so well veiled. Mm-hmm. Very veiled. And and that was our mantra mm. as a child. I I mean every week mm. in some way I was I was stating that mantra from President Lorenzo Snow.
0: And I, I'm guessing it's must be like, you know, when you you know, you kind of acknowledge the Bible growing up, but you don't really read it, that you're going more to the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, the, the modern revelation that's coming. Am I correct with that? Mm-hmm.
1: I would say there are people who read it, there, but it's definitely inferior. Like, my dad loves the Bible. He's still devout Mormon. Mm-hmm. He reads the Bible faithfully, mm-hmm. probably daily, but... Um, I would say what I was taught as a Mormon girl was that it's only uh, the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. Mm -hmm. That that during the time of Constantine and in history, the Bible has been distorted. Whereas the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, no questions asked. So definitely the Book of Mormon and the Mormon scriptures have priority and preeminence, and they use the Bible to support their doctrine. That It's kind of like the Bible's just a, I don't know. I, I'm making blanket statements, so I need to be careful, but my experience was the Bible would come around and create a support system for which weren't necessarily biblical. And
0: it was used only those parts that supported that was beliefs. Everything else was yeah. translated incorrectly or something like that. I, I always church history that say, yeah, you know, it seems like if you want to, if something goes wrong in church history, you just, you always jump to Constantine and blame him first. He's responsible for all the evils that take mm-hmm. place in church history.
1: Yes. Yes. I thought he was just a demon in the church the way of the church.
0: Okay. So you get done studying but
1: It wasn't yeah.
0: You get done studying, man, and what happens after that? Yeah.
1: Well, then we went into a Bible study about because our nature is sinful and not divine, we need Jesus not just to save us. And salvation for Mormons means overcoming the grave. Mm-hmm. It's the ability to resurrect, and Jesus did that for mm-hmm. us. And he gave that to everybody, but that's not equal to eternal life Mm. in Mormon doctrine. And so we believe that we were saved by grace, which meant the ability to resurrect, Mm. but we weren't saved to eternal life. And so knowing God is holy, God has always been, will always be unchanging. I am sinful. It's created a fissure in my relationship with God where now I... I'm circling around myself and other people and created things for identity, for life. I needed a savior to save me to eternal life. And that was that created just as much dissonance and um, opposition in my soul to nature of God. and It was such the um, antithesis of what I believed and what I believed I was capable of.
0: Now, for me, me and my listeners, if they have Mormons for, and we are like, Where, do you all believe in salvation by grace through faith? Pretty much every Mormon yeah. will say, yes, won't they?
1: hmm Yes. They absolutely will, because they believe it's, I mean, well, technically, I mean, every Mormon might believe things mm-hmm. different. You don't know what you're going to get person to person, which is similar to any faith system. But technicalities would say salvation is just overcoming the grave. Mm. We all have that. And Jesus did that for everybody who will ever exist on this Mm. planet. And so in agreement, they do say, yes, it's for by grace we are saved. And that's why it's really important to understand the difference between eternal life and salvation. Mm. So when I'm having a conversation with a Mormon, I all distinction and define what I'm talking about in eternal life, which is Basically for the Mormon, their highest heaven, the celestial kingdom, is where they have eternal life, where they can exalt into Godhood. Lower two heavens that they believe in don't provide eternal life in the presence of the Father and the Son.
0: I think also my understanding of Mormonism and I don't remember if you use this analogy in your book or not, if I got it somewhere else, but for us we could say salvation's kinda like we're in a pit. And Jesus comes and he pours us out of a pit. Whereas in Mormonism, you're in a pit and Jesus comes and he drops down a ladder.
1: Mm. And I would say eternal life would, yes, definitely Mm. that would be a representation of eternal life. Mm -hmm. But with salvation, just overcoming the grave, they knew they couldn't do that without Jesus. So that's what they make him. That's how he becomes their savior.
0: Yeah.
1: Does that make yeah. sense?
0: So, uh, so after salvation, do you remember what came next?
1: Let's see. Nature of God, nature. Well, those three. Mm. Um, well, I had to wrestle with the Bible mm-hmm. because as I became acquainted with these doctrine, these biblical doctrines and how much dissonance there was between Mm. biblical doctrine and Mormon doctrine I was discovering. Then I needed to research biblical archaeology, historicity of the Bible versus historicity of the Book Mm. of Mormon. So I began a five-month plunge into reading evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell, Mm. um, The Person uh, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. I read a lot of Josh McDowell. I'm guessing that. Other... Other just being a campus crusade for Christ. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Well, I wasn't involved with Crew at that time, but um, Gary, my boyfriend, Mm -hmm. was. He had been exposed to Crew, and Josh McDowell uh, was very influential in that organization. So, the world. Anyway, so that was a five-month journey of just wrestling through biblical history, archaeology, to discover which of these sources. Am I going to trust?
0: Mm-hmm. And you are trying to read Mormon groups as where well, because Mormons have their own apologetics organization out there. Yes. So I'm guessing you are trying to read some of that as well to see what your church did say about this. Yes. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it just felt very different at the time because back in the 1980s in Utah, there was no internet, mm-hmm. like you said. And so I would sneak into Christian bookstores and I would sneak into, sneak around town looking for resources. It was hard to find Mormon resources that would paint anything but a pretty
0: picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm kind of getting a picture about the classic jokes made by Baptists going into liquor stores or something like that. That's what you were doing, going into all these Christian bookstores, yeah. coming in, like getting out of your car, just looking around, making sure you weren't being seen. and
1: Yes. Yes, that was exactly what it was like.
0: Okay, so you do this search, and what are you finding about the Bible?
1: Well, the I mean, the thousands of um, archaeological, mm-hmm. thousands of archaeological, all the archaeological support was boggling to me. And I think that that was the biggest um, factor for mm-hmm. me in finally coming to the belief that that really is the word of God. Um, mm-hmm. knowing that they're discovering that there was no archeological evidence for the book of Mormon was devastating. Mm-hmm. And I had never applied my mind to my faith before. Mm-hmm. And so beginning to do that and I thing that God gave me to begin to reason, was very distressing because I wanted the church to be true. I didn't want to face the reality that if it was this means I'm cutting myself off possibly from my entire community, from all the people I love. I didn't know what would happen. And it was terrifying. So Mm. I wanted it to be true. So I didn't go in thinking it's not true. I went in with the, it's gotta be true. I'm gonna prove it's true. I know it's true. So that was.
0: And I don't. Really? Not only were you going to be cutting yourself off, just like many people who leave faiths like uh, Islam or Hinduism or others, you're saying the rest of your family was wrong, and that can have catastrophic consequences for them as well.
1: Yes. Yes. Mm. Yeah, so much shame, and these shame honor religions uh-huh. shame to the family and the community when someone leaves or when somebody rebels, mm. or it just yeah, the parents carry the shame of their mm. children.
0: So, how long did it take for you became a Christian, then?
1: So it was about a ten month journey for me. Yeah. About five months into that journey. Gary and I would do Bible study every Sunday night and fight like crazy. And my eyes were very closed Mm -hmm. to biblical truth up until that five months in when I'd come to the point where I could see there's so much archaeological evidence and historicity for the Bible and reading about evidence that demands a verdict more than a car. And those arguments for who the person of Christ is and the Trinitarian God that moved me. And then it, I could begin to open myself to biblical truth. And so I equate it, the metaphor I use is like peeling an onion, where you just peel one piece back at a time and bits of light began to come in. And I think where it began for me after five months in is I, I finally accepted I am full. My nature is and I need Jesus to save me to eternal life. I have my works are but filthy rags Mm -hmm. and that was any that was incredibly humbling for me because my had in mormonism had bred such an arrogance that i'm basically good and i can pull this off and even though i knew i wasn't in the way i was living for some reason there was a disconnect there as well my lifestyle was not reflecting oh i have a divine nature (laughs) very much aligning with simple nature but there was the disconnect and it was, I could live with that disconnect. So Mm -hmm. when I began to see who, who I am, then I could begin to accept who, and that he had a plan because he wanted life with me. He wanted me in his community of love. And so that was another four month journey of working my way through these doctrines and Working my way closer to the reality of what this would mean for my family for mm. me What it would cost and it was terrifying, but um, I Met with the Trinity the hardest thing for mm. me the hardest doctrine for me so I grappled with that for a long time and met with Gary's pastor and he described the Trinity as an egg yolk and a white and a shell and like God's like water and I think back in the 80s maybe that's, that's the best some people could do and so it just brought more confusion to me um, about this Trinitarian God but nine months into that journey from 10 months I read a book called Beyond Mormonism one day that someone had given me and it was a man's journey of converting to Mormonism and then his journey of searching and crisis and then eventually coming to the biblical Jesus and the biblical God. Mm. And as I story, it was one day in my bedroom, I was still living at home. Um, and I just journeyed with that Jim Spencer through his story. And it was, uh, it's like I was installing somebody mm. who was walking the path I had walked. And at the end of that book, I closed the page, the back cover, and I was like, God, I know I need a Savior. And I was in tears, and I, I knew I wanted Jesus to come in and just complete my soul and my life, but I, I was stuck on this one God in three persons. And so I just said, God, I, I need you to somehow... Help me get beyond this one god thing that's keeping me... It's like my stumbling block. And then God gave me a vision, and there was a vision of Jesus on the throne. <clears throat> and people surrounding him, bowing down, singing, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, over and over and over. And I had never read the book of Revelation at this point. And... <clears throat> I just joined them. And at the same time it was, I was watching and I fell on my face and I was like, God come in, Jesus come into this life. Forgive, come into my heart. Forgive me, forgive all the many ways that I have sought life outside of you and idolized myself. And I just asked him, I just gave him my heart. I gave him my life. And it's, it's so stunning to me that it's like he gave me a vision of his holiness and I knew there is nothing i can do to make myself worthy of this god's presence and being in his presence and yet his holiness drew him near to me and so kindly, such a pursuer
0: Hi, this is Justin Briley of the Unbelievable Radio Show and Podcast recommending another podcast to you. Nick Peters is a deep thinker, a friend of mine, and he has an inspiring faith. So you should listen to him and his excellent guests on the Deeper Waters Show. So keep going deeper and keep getting uh, wetter, I guess. Blessings, Nick. Keep up the good work. You know, when I was going through this and thinking about your story and especially how how you talk to your family later on, We'll get to that, hopefully, later on. I can't but think of <clears throat> my wife and I was friends, uh, Nabil Qureshi, past passed mm-hmm. five years ago, and his story on coming mm-hmm. out of Islam and how very similar the two are.
1: Yes, I, I so resonated as I read his story. It was so powerful.
0: Well, let's go back to the past now, because m- much of your book deals with growing up Mormon, and my audience just might not know about that too much. What's it like growing up as a little girl in Mormonism?
1: Well, back when I was growing up in Mormonism, our whole lives revolved around the church. And we had paintings in temples at our houses. The temples were so significant to us. And we talked about the temple. We, I dreamt about the day, like my dream, ever since I can remember my greatest dream was one day marrying the man of my dreams in the Mormon temple. That was all in it. And so that was instilled in me from the time I can't even remember, so that my first memories come with that. And I knew one day I will be married in the Mormon temple mm-hmm. and I my exaltation into godhood. So I think just everything in our lives circled around our church and our religion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Our language, the whole culture was Mormonism.
0: Now, to an extent, the necessary a bad finger that I once listeners was saying, "Oh, are you saying that our kids growing up they shouldn't have their lives built around the church, built around Jesus?" I mean, how, what do you think?
1: I just think I think um, what is unique about Mormon is I don't think it's all a bad thing. No, I think we like our religion got into us in every single way possible. Except mm-hmm. transformation was very much. Now that I walk closely with the biblical Jesus, I know how much transformation is a circumcision of the heart. And in my culture, circumcision was very much about performance and outward behavior. And it wasn't about the heart. And I'm not speaking for everyone, but that was my experience and what was burned into me. To do the right things, we need to choose the right. And so the culture in which I grew up was a very legalistic works-based acceptance. And. So I think we just we all create a culture. Every faith system creates a culture. And I think what's important is the incentive, too. Is this a grace-filled culture or that will lead to life and freedom? Or is this a culture mm-hmm. that will lead to death
0: mm-hmm. and
1: works of the flesh?
0: I think, um, be fair, it's not that it was an unloving culture you grew up in. mean, you never doubted, for instance, that your parents loved you. I right and, and to this day you still have a great love for your parents I do but, but I mean I, I think we'd say most Mormon and Christian parents they probably kind of raise their kids very similarly wanting to instill the exact same values in many cases and because you know on many mm-hmm. more issues today as the Mormons work right alongside one another no problem
1: right But absolutely
0: yeah but the whole thing is, it's kind of, you become so ingrained in it. And it's not a culture because you think you're always having to work, it, right?
1: Right. But I didn't know that wasn't grace. Like, I didn't have mm. a, I didn't have a paradigm that mm. was any other way of seeing the world other than a works based acceptance. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. And it really makes sense to a lot of us when we grow up because we get suspicious about the whole idea of something for anything. I mean, if I, I'm on my, see something pop up when ad like saying, hey, you've been selected and you've worn a free, I'm clicking X, and it means like, yeah, yeah, why? Uh huh. Mm -hmm. and so when it comes to grace you're thinking the same kind of thing so you're growing up you're trying to follow the words the wisdom and yet at the same time i'm seeing in your stories you're just a girl like any other girl at the same time like you talk about the guys that you start developing interest Mm -hmm. in and your first kiss and things like that Mm -hmm.
1: yes uh my whole life was about being worthy of the Holy Spirit's presence, the Holy Ghost's presence, and Heavenly Father's love and acceptance. Mm-hmm. And the way I would make my service is to be telling, it was it's a list of laws and ordinances of our gospel. And so telling the truth, being loving, going to church every Sunday, paying a full tithe, all these things. And as a little girl, those were not hard to do. Most of them. were. Mm-hmm um but because i had a divine nature for one and my worthiness was based my worthiness of heavenly father's love and acceptance and presence was based on my penal worthiness then that created a culture where we were so focused on externals that i needed to keep i felt like i needed to perpetuate this external image that i'm working really hard and so and I wanted, in me, wanted to be worthy of the Holy Ghost's presence. And so the Holy Ghost would come and go based on my worthiness. And if I was being good and I was in keeping in step with the laws and ordinances of the gospel, then it would come and bring these burnings in the bosom experiences. But if I wasn't, then I was without them. And those experiences were what continued to affirm our church is true. And so... Mm-hmm. By the time I was probably eight to ten years old I was very aware there's a shadow side to me that doesn't desire to do the right choose the right and do all the right things and keep myself worthy and uh, I had my place to just bury that away to cover it even though I would continue to um Participate in activities that I knew made me unworthy of Heaven's acceptance and presence. It was this very aware. This battle exists in me. This dark and light um, from a very young age.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm not sure how much you got into all this exactly, but apparently, in your teenage years, it became a whole thing of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll movement. <laughs>
1: At least the drugs and the rock and roll and a lot of alcohol abuse Mm -hmm. in high school. Yes. By the time I was a senior in high school, I had resisted the alcohol for um, all through high school. And like that was kind of the plumb line, one of them. If I'm going to. Mm-hmm. You know, that and sexual morality, too, we worthy almost through the high school years and just can I get through this. And my friends were falling into the party scene and there was something really attractive about it to me. It just seemed like for a night they were free of fame that we mm-hmm. carried for being human. And these and were Mormon having, friends? These were Mormon friends. And mm-hmm. so I had a lot of friends a good group of them who were non Mormon who were partying, but then I had Mormon friends who were partying, and there were Mormon friends as well, but my friends definitely rebelling and so I resisted until my senior year, but then I was kind of like a pressure cooker waiting to blow, and I just delved into the party world with the same passion I had hungered and stro i had I'd been such a striver after personal mm. worthiness so.
0: What, what is it even that makes a girl like you suddenly do a 180 where it seems like you're so focused on good Mormon girl and getting married and temperament? Hey, let's party.
1: Mm-hmm. I would say it was the shame factor. Mm. I had, I felt like I was in or I was out, and love was there and love wasn't there, depending on what I do. And It was a very loving family, but at the same time, we become like that which we worship. And when Mm -hmm. we're worshiping a God that's a God of conditions and whose love is conditional, we also inherit that kick. And so in our family culture, there was um, it was definitely flavored that way. And I think I just grew so tired. I wanted to do it well. I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be right and good. And I could never do enough. And I definitely knew when I wasn't. And so um, I think living in that tension of, am I worthy enough? Is there going to be love now or not with Heavenly with Mom and Dad? And part of it's my own perception, and then part of it's theology and doctrine. But even so, I think I just wore out. And I couldn't. I had no place for that shame to go when I wasn't worthy. And partying and drinking and getting drunk and inebriated, and drug use helped me escape for that time. The shame.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: like I never cared if I was enough. I just shut down my conscience.
0: Yeah, it, it sounds to me a mountain cock. Well, you know. If I'm not green enough, I might as well just go ahead and have some fun while, while I'm here.
1: Yes. That's exactly what happened. And it's so the Mormon church to it's kind of it breeds that all or nothing. For me it bred that all or nothing mindset. And so, once I plunged into the party, I knew what it would take to make myself worthy again, and I'd have to go meet with the bishop and get an interview, do bishop interviews, and the bishop would judge how, when I would become worthy. And I knew that process would take time and be a, a long one, and I wasn't ready for that. So there was partial, it was either one foot in or one foot out.
0: Mm-hmm. And or underst- both feet out. I understand that, I mean, this is May and Mental Health Aware Month. And since my wife and I both have Asperger's, we take this kind of thing very seriously. But I understand that Utah kind of ranks extremely high on mental illness, could be the highest state with it. Do you know about that? Or
1: I do know a bit. Mm-hmm. And Mormons close to me will say, that has nothing to do with our religion. We live in a state with seasonal depression, which is true. I experienced Uh that when I lived there, where it's very gray and dark throughout winter. Um, So that would be what you would hear, what I hear from the Mormons who I love who live there. But you can't, I think they're, having grown up in that religious culture and what it breeds with the shame and honor System of belief. It does Mm -hmm. not surprise me at all that mental health is so challenging, especially now, where there are such a there are so many Mormons who are coming to this place of questioning their faith, coming to a place of not believing it, and then Mm -hmm. they've been told their whole lives the church do and everything else is false, Mm -hmm. and so then they're left with no hope and no God, and no faith, and they're angry. And it does, it just is a huge uh, mental health, I think, melting pot because of all these factors and all the pressure to yes. be something that we can't be.
0: One of the things I tell people when they have Mormons come by is I say, I try and be a to not focus on destroying mormonism cuz mm-hmm. I, I think I, could, I i could do that if i wanted to but yeah build up the bible instead yeah cuz yes. if you, if you don't do it that way what will happen is oh you've converted them away from mormonism yay now they're an angry agnostic or an atheist
1: exactly mm-hmm. exactly yes and that's the most critical path like said, mm-hmm. is absolutely critical because otherwise you are leading them into a life without God.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's what Gary did for me. Gary kept forcing me to look at the biblical Jesus, to look at the God, to encounter him and wrestle with who this God is. And that was, I think, my saving grace because otherwise I don't know why I would want faith mm-hmm. when I have felt so big
0: hmm So with all this, though, you eventually did get out of But what, what were your parents thinking about when you were in this lifestyle?
1: Oh, I think it was extremely traumatic mm. for them. Um, parents are responsible for their children's choices. At least mm-hmm. back in my day, that was very much a part of the doctrine and culture. And so there was so much shame on them, because their children whenever their children rebelled, I wasn't the only child who rebelled, so it mm-hmm. was just shame upon shame for them. So my dad didn't really know what to do with it. He was really angry at my rebellion and uh, alcohol abuse. and there wasn't any space to just be behave poorly. <laughs> and still be embraced you know what I mean and I understand that's a battle for parents any parent but it's like I'm all good or I'm all bad is how I felt Mm -hmm. and so I think it was a mixture of anger and with my mom it was more desperation her response and so I think she battled to figure out how can I change something how can we make this different and so she would stay in there and have conversations with me occasionally and how, like, when is this going to start? Um, it was, I had to totally shut down my mind and my heart to the impact I was having and just not care because it was so deep. The shame mm-hmm. was so deep on the family. Mm-hmm.
0: And even when you became a Christian, this didn't just go away, did it?
1: Oh, gosh, No. Well, when I became a Christian, I had about three days of bliss. With God. And then I realized the terror of needing to tell my family just hit me like a brick wall. And I just decided, no, I'm not doing that yet, which is really understandable. It takes time. And so it was about four months from when I to when I finally Mustered the courage to tell my parents about my newfound faith. Mm. And um, I took them to a Japanese restaurant, which I have compassion on them. Like that they were in a public place when their daughter dropped that bomb, that she did not believe the Mormon church to be true. In fact, she believes in another Jesus, and mm. they don't believe that. They believe we all believe in the same Jesus and the same God. Mm. And- How we define him doesn't matter. And so, anyway, I sat with them in that little Japanese restaurant, but I chose that place very strategically because I was terrified Mm -hmm. of what sort of eruption emotionally place. And Mm -hmm. I remember just sitting there, eating lunch, and then telling them, Mom and Dad, I've placed my trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. And my mom wailed. And she just, and she exclaimed, you've left us, you've left the family. And then we, like weeping and, I mean, gnashing of teeth almost. And it was horrifying Mm -hmm. and probably not terribly surprising, except I thought in the restaurant maybe it would be curbed a little more. Um, Then my dad started coming at me with scripture and trying to have that kind of dialogue with me and extremely stressful. So it began there and then it was about 18 months of incredible tension between my parents and me. And I lost, I lost my friends, I lost my community. Very stressful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, what happened, while we, how did you escape? The, uh, you know the law of the drugs and drinking because that mm. didn't happen immediately what happened it didn't yeah
1: well that was in that 14 month period from when I had trusted Christ to when mm. I told my parents I'm a Christian mm. um, what shifted is that desire to stop abusing alcohol and stop looking for life outside of Jesus um but there was a powerlessness that I was encountering. And so instead of well, I had mm. felt shame or guilt because I'd so shut down my conscience, suddenly mm. my conscience was alive. And so I had determined I'm going to stop partying. I'm going to stop abusing alcohol. I'm going to like, I knew the verse, um, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Mm. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And Gary and I had decided together that's what we're going to do. And because he had the same struggle. Yeah, he had the same struggle. Mm-hmm. So together we set out to quit Jesus. And every Friday or Saturday night we failed, mm. and we. But what was really different about that season is, no longer was I alone. Jesus was with me, and I knew that he will never leave me, he'll never forsake me, and that verse was very transforming to me throughout that season, because I didn't know a Jesus who would go into me, into the bars with me. I had not known a Jesus who would sit with me in my shame or guilt or regret the morning after I got drunk. My Jesus in Mormonism could not be with me. The Holy Ghost would not be with me, and... Suddenly I know Jesus is with me. God's word says he is and there was a comfort and it began to melt me and so in that 14 months I had to come face-to-face with my addictions and they were many and my powerlessness to overcome them and then nearing the end of that season it was my 21st birthday and I was determined not to go out and drink that night and my girlfriends, Gary and I had broken up at this point and we're no longer in relationship. And, um, I had dated another Gary who was not a Christian and didn't even care about God. And I was going to walk with Jesus before I started dating him. And so the irony in all of it, I just came face to face with my business to Mm -hmm. live the life I was designed to live. And so my 21st birthday, I wasn't gonna go out. Well, my girlfriends came over and I just didn't have the willpower to say no. And I drank like eight beers and six shots and I didn't get a buzz. And as hard as I tried to disconnect from reality, I had to be fully present. And I'm holding my girlfriend's head as she throws up and over a urine soaked floor and gross guys are trying to pick up on me and i was just like it's like death what had felt like life to me at one time truly felt like death and so i went home that night and i just fell face down on my bed with clenched hands and one after another i got addictions and fully surrendered all of them to him, all the ones that I was aware of at the time. And I was like, God, I need you to give me a new heart and wash my mind clean. And I cried myself to sleep. And the next morning I awoke and it's as if he transplanted and like a brain transplant. It was remarkable. And I knew my chains have been, I am set free to live this life I've been designed to live. So that was, that night of surrender changed the trajectory of my life radically.
0: I think something interesting we can get also from this thing you share with this part about Gary is that Gary was struggling with his sin just like you were same time that didn't stop him from being able to be a help to you, and yeah. I think we can get something about that we have this idea that we're not going to be able to be good missionaries and evangelize us until we're doing perfect. Now of course we should seek mm. to eliminate all that stuff from our lives, but you don't have to be perfect to do right. this. Right.
1: No. Like God just longs for us to be an intimate community with him, and I minds we have this idea that this Christian life is a bunch of do's and don'ts. Mhm. And I think that's what's so transforming and radical about Christianity is that it's all about this Trinitarian of love that mm-hmm. God's just inviting us into and yoke ourselves to this Jesus. And yeah, it's a journey of transformation that is slow. And wherever we are in that journey, or like Gary, completely um living carnal. Time, uh, very powerful how the Holy Spirit can move through people. I He's think, not limited by us. I think that's what's so beautiful.
0: I think what's so interesting also about what you just said is how you, when you talking earlier, how you said the Trinity was a big hang-up, and then you talk about this beautiful Trinitarian community.
1: You mean that
0: now it's become, it, it. it's, I mean, it's there something that's hard to understand, of course, Because, hey, it's got, it's, it's very become mm. something incredibly shaping to you hasn't it
1: very shaping yes and it was 14 years into my journey with the real jesus before i was introduced to the uh, of the trinity being a community of love at the center of the universe that mm-hmm. created each created us for life with them and that's that's what salvation is this living life in this community of love and bringing that unity to this earth. Mm. and it's it's a very radical. it's very trans, it's been very transforming to me.
0: mind when at this point you're listening to the deeper podcast we got Lisa Brockman on talking about her book Out of Zion but if you're here next week we're going to have Dr. Ronnie Campbell, and he's going to be talking about his new book Views and the Problem of Evil so if you're interested in the Problem of Evil and how Christian's fit, tune in next week now after you get past all these harmful addictions there is still one hang up that you've got definitely on your life. And it's one that many girls have always.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I had Gary and I had broken up about uh, nine months after I had come to Christ we had to do a campus crusade for Christ meeting on campus. And They were those staff people were just so excited to meet this Mormon who'd converted to Christianity because back then they just did not encounter Mormons who'd become historical biblical Christians hardly ever on campus. And so they took me through some basic follow up. Bible studies, and then it was summertime, and Gary and I had come so through. We decided it would be best for both of our growth if we were to part ways, and um did that on really good terms. Well, then I just was think I just thought I'm going to walk with Jesus, like it is time. And then I was just captivated by this football player in the weight room one day, and started dating Dave. And mm. so I think that was just a perfect. Example of how I had given men so much, or guys—I wouldn't call them—so much power to define me and be my identity, and I didn't know how to live without one by my side. And Mm -hmm. so there was this enslavement, and I think so much pressure on them. So as a result, so Dave and I dated for about six months, and. It was through that relationship that I realized there is no man that is ever going to satisfy me. Not because one... There, he's just not meant to. Not outside of Jesus. And so that was the final... That and alcohol I gave over about the same that same night.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, this isn't to say, of course, I every girl out there longing for a relationship with a man is definitely a sinful thing, but because... You don't want to be an idol. Yes. Yes. So you decide to avoid dating for, what, a year or so?
1: Yes. After I started walking with Jesus, I went to a Campus Crusade for Christ winter conference six days later, and there caught a vision for spending the rest of my life in ministry with crew. Mm -hmm. Um, which the organs changed its name to crew. Mm -hmm. And at that point realized this, this, um, addiction, this idolatry of putting so much life and trust, Mm -hmm. um, needs some time. I need to take some time and just be with Jesus. I need to let Jesus be my sufficiency, my lover. And so, yes, I committed a year to Jesus.
0: Okay. In this time, though, you're going to all these meetings, and while you're not dating, it doesn't mean you're blind to guys, of course.
1: (laughs) That's for sure. Well, back when I still was partying and still dating Dave, Lisa Alexander, who was the Campus Crusade staff woman who had been chasing me around campus for a year, to try to get me to do Bible study with her, Mm -hmm. Um, she She caught me one week and we met and she said, you know, I think there's been a good amount of time since you became a Christian. Mm -hmm. And I think it's time for you to start considering telling your family about your, and I just felt like she punched me in the gut. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Lisa, I have shelved that. I have Absolutely no desire to go into those waters, and she said, "Well, I just think you're starting. You know, you get to your. It's reasonable to take time. It's a long journey, but you're living a lie." And I was like, "I've been living lies my whole life. Like this, that, mm-hmm. I can keep doing that." But she planted a seed and she told me, she gave me a phone number and she said, this man, Dennis, is our director of our ministry. And he said he'd be glad to walk with you through this and give you wisdom or advice or whatever. So I called him that night and I talked to Dennis on the phone for about 45 minutes. And by the end of that call, I had a total crush on him. So I'm still dating Dave. I'm coming to the end of myself and my idolatry but totally have a crush on Dennis and I don't know what's going on because I've never seen him and my crushes were not blind like that so and I was very motivated meeting and see this person who had captured my affections and took him a loaf of pumpkin bread and thought he was beautiful and he spoke that night and gave him the pumpkin bread. And I started praying that night that God would bring us into a relationship. So that happened in about November of my junior year. And it was December that I recommitted my life to Christ and really surrendered all to him and committed next year. to But I definitely had a crush on Dennis Brockman that whole year.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, one story before we getting back to Dennis Brockman that I'd like to discuss here is that when you with your parents now there is mm-hmm. a, a funny story in the book where you have someone who's meeting with them with you uh-huh. uh, your dad's there and he and we, his name was bob and you're yeah, having a prayer and it's just it's so funny because I, I wish you would have said what happened and how Bob just says, oh, we want to be the ones to pray because you pray to Satan. <laughs> oh. bam! <laughs> oh. I, I don't know. What happened at that point? I mean.
1: Oh, my gosh. You know what? It was so traumatic for me. It's hard for me to remember details of the rest of that conversation. It was long. Yeah, we were meeting up at the Institute of the LDS Institute of Religion, University of Utah, with oh. the director of the Institute and my dad, and then Bob, who is an ex-Mormon, um, who is like really good with apologetics, but very not very tuned in relationally. And then that, a man—that's probably
0: was... me too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you for your confession and honesty. And so, although I'm not experiencing you that way right now, mm-hmm. um, anyway. And then a pad to pray and my dad and I were just seeking to somehow build a bridge between us. And I think part of me too, wanted him to see why I couldn't stay in the Mormon church. Jesus was not compelling and why the love of God was so compelling, the biblical God. And so I wanted him to see, I know so badly. And I thought maybe Bob could help my dad see why I needed to leave the church, why I needed to follow Jesus. But when Bob opened it up with, well, let's open with, with prayer and we need to pray because you pray to Satan. I just about lost my lunch. It was just for me so traumatic. I was like, why do we do this? Um, and then it was a lot of theology and doctrine. And as it goes with Mormons and Christians, Just a lot of arguing with interpretation of her, and Mm -hmm. major doctrines, again, person of Christ, nature of God, nature of humans, what's the plan of salvation? That's Mm -hmm. to me the most critical place to land with Mormons when you're in conversation and to use the plan of salvation as my guide. Mm -hmm. Because that's that's the essence of everything to a Mormon. And for a Christian, I mean, that really captures the essence of Christianity. So so we just and I mean, it was probably 90 minutes of me just not being able to get beyond, he just told my dad he prays to Satan. <laughs> it was just awful. <laughs> oh. it, it, it's
0: awful. At the same time, it's just so funny because it's just so random and out there. It's like, well, I guess we all know where he stands now.
1: Oh right, I think that was you know the Mormons. Joseph Smith in his vision, the founder of the Mormon Church, claimed that Heavenly Father told him as he sought Heavenly Father. That's who they that what they call God. So yeah. I'm using that term, Heavenly Father. He was seeking God to find out which of these religious sects do I join: Presbyterian, this Lutheran. What do I join and he said that Heavenly Father told him to join none of them because all of their creeds are an abomination to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so it began initially, like it set up this divisive posture. All their creeds are an abomination to the Lord. And that was it was this like my mom at one point after my book released had seen something on the internet and it had that a Christian had put up there about Mormonism. And I was like, well, mom, you have to remember that Christians didn't start a war. Joseph Smith began this posturing against the whole Christian church with calling our creeds an abomination to the Lord. And so you're the only one true church you claim and we're all false. So you set up, the Mormon church has set itself up as this us against them um, posture from the beginning and so they get so offended when people talk about their church it's it's hard it's hurtful for my family to write this book and I understand it can feel personal to them but it's not personal it's very natural to dialogue it's mm-hmm. very natural you know if you're in a um, Socratic culture which the world used to be where mm-hmm. we can dialogue and have these conversations and not take it all personally um, but that's not how it goes, and so that whole conversation was mm-hmm. just really painful.
0: I think even Mormon refers to our churches as the churches of Satan. Mm. Am I correct?
1: Um. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if they've changed that, <laughs> but because they they have made some critical changes to yes. make themselves culturally acceptable and to appear as christians so i don't know if that's still in there but i know in their temple ceremonies and it might be um mm. but in their temple ceremonies they've changed this too but i do know for many like years they had a clergyman come in into the garden. satan was dressed like a clergyman in the play in the garden of eden Mm-hmm.
0: So, okay, you no, know, game two, you know, I, I just had to make sure I got that winning because that story was just so funny to me when I read it. <laughs> but, and yeah, that, that's totally me. I've asked burgers, I'd probably do the exact same thing in some cases. <laughs> but, um, so you're, you've are you seen this guy named Ned. Let's pretty much face it, you've got the hearts for him. But you've got this lure that you're not going to date at mm-hmm. all. And you don't even know if he thinks the same way about you.
1: I didn't initially, but then Dennis and I and some other staff people with crew and students would go country swing dancing every Thursday Mm. night after the weekly meeting. And Dennis and I definitely gravitated toward each other. Mm -hmm. And then, so I'm sensing he's got something for me that's unique, That he's not treating all the girls this way. And then it was, Right before that summer, I was going on a summer mission project with Crew to San. I was going to Colorado. He was on staff. He'd been on staff for nine years, and with Crew, and was ten years older than me, almost. Mm. So I understood his caution. But anyway, he initiated a conversation with me to let me know he was interested in me and wanted to pursue not ready for commitment and. Anyway, so he expressed interest, but it was slow. And then over six months, he really didn't pursue me much at all. And I was this new believer, 10 years younger almost. You know, he'd been a Christian since he was 11 years old, 10 years old, and on staff with Chris, so he had to be very cautious, I understand. Mm -hmm. But it was a year and a month after I had a conversation with the Lord about committing to the next year. When Dennis Brockman started to move toward me and pursue me with some very significant intentionality, so mm-hmm. I had that year to detach from that idolatry and seeking so much life from men, and that was such a rich time with God.
0: That was a part of your story that I found very humorous, as of what, at that point, because I think we do that. Uh, short from one month's time, I'm also practically ten years older than my wife is.
1: Oh uh, wow. Yes. I've gotten that.
0: Yeah, she oh, her birthday is August of nineteen ninety and mine is September of nineteen eighty. Okay. So uh, I say, yeah, I definitely robbed that crater blind in this case.
1: <laughs> I love it. We do have that in common. They're born a lot more, a lot longer before you guys.
0: Mm-hmm. So now you come to this, the end of this year, and then you start dating, right? Okay.
1: Yep, Gary or Dennis. Sorry, mm-hmm. Gary's gone. Um, well, Dennis and I had not gone country swing dancing for months at that point because I was kind of avoiding him, and. I took my staff interview to join staff with crew Um, and that was at the Christmas winter conference just a couple weeks before this conversation happened. And so Dennis asked me one night after a weekly meeting if I'd like to go country swing dancing and we'd never went alone. like We'd only gone alone in that previous year. And so I was like, okay, sure. And then I was thinking at this point, though, nothing's going to happen between us. Like we're just one of our staff women who worked with us, with Dennis initiated with me before Christmas and asked what was going on with Dennis. And I shared with her my story. And she said, well, until he says something again, just assume nothing. Mm-hmm. And so I really released him to the Lord and just decided, you know, he's become a great and This is it'll be, and that's okay. So I had completely surrendered any hope of anything changing there. And we had developed a great friendship. And then that Christmas conference where I had taken my staff interview spontaneously and he was my Sunday school teacher also. And he asked me to lunch after church one day. And then he asked me country swing dancing the next week and we were on the dance floor and he said, let's dance one more dance and have a, which is a define the relationship talk. Mm. And I was like, no, Let's do it now. You wing these things on me at the oddest times. You just say it now. And he's like, no, let's dance. So we're on the dance floor. And then he proceeds to tell me that he would like to pursue me, that he's ready to move toward me in a more committed way. And I was like, I don't believe you. I've heard this before. And so Mm -hmm. we went back and forth about three different times. And then he gave me a word picture to try to convince me really why he's toward me. And the word picture, he said, well, it's like I've been on the water for the last, like on a lake for the last many years. And there have been women in different boats out there, but it's so thick around all of us that I haven't seen anyone clearly and I haven't moved in anyone's direction. And he said, the fog has cleared away from you and my oars are in the water and I'm heading your, your in your direction. And I said, well, let me give you an engine. <laughs> and So... We six weeks later were engaged. It was quite shocking to many people who were involved with the ministry.
0: Yeah, my wife and I started talking about that day at the time, but we started talking on her birthday in 2009, and we weren't interested in a romantic relationship. I mean, I wanted to meet someone someday, so did she, but she wanted to get together with her ex. I wasn't interested in a distance relationship because I wasn't sure at the time. Uh And so, yeah, not interested. We'd gotten together because a mutual friend told us about one of her. Okay. Come Labor Day, we decided we were going to start dating. I made her an our post in December.
1: Dude, you wasted (laughs) no time. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Well, before we get to how your story ends, I'd like to remind everyone... That you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. And everything we do is based on the support of people like you. And I want to encourage you, please go to our website, DeeperWatersApologetics.com. There's a link side help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click on that link and you get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make a donation, and then you get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Mike, or his wife, Debbie, and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will get that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also... Um, Go and purchase books that I've written or co-written. Hopefully, by, out by now at the time Tom Visits' release for B. Um, what's tend to be Dawkins in the dark, which is a look at the, the Dawkins's latest book, Outgrowing God. You can also buy a creed for the ages. Your parson's creed in today's Christian, but I've written, mm. um. Christian Answers, veneration's Questions, God, and Natural Disasters, Defining Inerrancy, Contextualizing Inerrancy, and of course, the Mentioner's Pro- Project. On to my one, we've got a YouTube channel as well, not just for a podcast, but for little videos that I'm working on and making. And if you can't do any of this, just please go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the show. It means so much. Now, um, Lisa, do you have an organization or a chair? Do you do like see people donate to?
1: I do. Being a missionary crew, we, mm-hmm. I am dependent on gospel champions, supporters to partner with me in ministry through donations and, t- mm-hmm. yeah, tithing toward my ministry organi- and being able to keep ministering. So my website is brockmans.org, B-R-O-C-K-M-A-N-S.org. And there you can learn more about my ministry with crew and it also has a way to give
0: i'm curious why did can change your name to crew and what does crew mean anyway
1: well crew is supposed to be it doesn't have a meaning in and of itself mm-hmm. other than there is latin uh there is a latin root to it um but what stimulated the beginning to research um, whether or not we should change our name is, as they did market research, they learned that the word campus from our previous name, Campus Crusade for Christ, was actually the biggest turnoff to people. It wasn't crusade and it wasn't Christ. And when people would hear Campus Crusade for Christ, they would shut down if they weren't a college student or on a college campus. And so that was So there was just years of research that went into each word in our name, and would it be worth taking this name that's 70 years old and changing it? So Mm -hmm. um, crusade was the second uh, word that created a turnoff, of course, and Mm -hmm. Christ was not not the Mm -hmm. offender. And so Mm -hmm. anyway, after doing enough research, we decided, our organization, my husband was actually on the team that did the research, um, that it would be beneficial enough um, to opening conversations about Christ uh, to make that name shift. And so crew is supposed to be infused by the experience you have with our staff and our organization, that mm-hmm. we're people committed to the Great Commission, committed to discipleship with Jesus and spiritual transformation.
0: Okay, so let's get back to your story here now. Dennis proposes to you, and obviously you say yes, just as my Audi did. Yes. So how, so how long was it until you got married?
1: We were engaged, and then five months later we were married.
0: Okay, it, it took us seven months. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I proposed on Christmas Eve, and I, I proposed at the airport where I picked my oh. my, my wife up. I was going to take her to spend Christmas with my family. And even on the way, she said, so when should we get married? I said, July 24th. What? I'd already worked it out because the, the guy who wound up marrying us it had been her idea for one day. Oh And I was trying to find when would be a good time to have a wedding and a honeymoon, cause I'm a seminary student. And it needs to be during the summer. Mm. Weekends are usually best for weddings, and I look and I see July 25th has a full moon. I'm taking her to the beach <laughs> for our honeymoon. A full moon on the beach. I'm not passing that one up. There you go, July 24th. I love it.
1: You are a man and, of detail. <laughs> and,
0: yeah. <laughs> And when we, uh, uh, <clears throat> joke that when I took her to see people, because a lot of people didn't even know I was dating someone from I mean, my friends and family. family knew, but a lot of friends didn't. Uh-huh. And we asked over to Tennessee, and there was this rock slide that had taken place at, the prevented travel mm. and so we had to go a long way around so we were the last ones to get there and I told Allie how in each time like the first time there I walk in and everyone is already there we're the last ones to get there and I have Allie's hand in mine
1: mm-hmm.
0: very strategically her ring hand is covered up and I walk in and say hi everyone um this is Allie she and I have been dating for about three months now, and um, then I slowly move my hands and as of a few hours ago, she's the point important role in my life, and then I say, I dive out of the way of all the women who want to jump up there and see that ring immediately.
1: <laughs> I love it. You made it very public.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I had thought about proposing on Christmas, but... It was suggested your yeah, parents very under extra pressure. You should probably do it privately. But okay, we go privately. Oh, uh, there okay, you
1: go. Okay, so you got
0: married. You got married five months later, and, mm-hmm. and a things are going very good for you. And how? In the book, I some, but how? Your your family, things have improved with your family. They do
1: mm-hmm. come
0: and see you regularly. They love their son-in-law and they love their grandkids. Yes, <laughs>
1: kids have been champions. They're just, one thing I love about Mormons, uh, Mormonism is the family values that the religion oh, yes. perpetuates. And mm-hmm. um, my parents, amidst whatever advice they'd been given to sever relationship with me because I was an apostate, they would not Mm. do that. And they've just been so committed to the whole family and pursued us. My mom's come out and helped me homeschool over here and she would come out twice a year to Orlando from Utah and spend several weeks at a time and they fly us home for Christmas. They're just really committed to the whole family but have just worked really hard to make Mm. our relationship rich and vice versa. And I think we've mm. loved each other really well.
0: Mm-hmm. And they really do get along with Dennis. five. they could very well look like at him and say, well, this is one of the guys who's played a role in keeping her Mormonism.
1: Yeah, the, I think the blessing and the timing of Dennis coming into my life is that Gary has been the scapegoat for my parents' anger about me leaving mm. Mormonism you know, they had for somebody besides me, it went on Gary. And I didn't, I don't like that for Gary. Mm -hmm. I think, I think part of it, the battle for my parents has been the, I made a choice that I wasn't a victim. And Mm -hmm. I think part of me telling my story is helping them understand I wasn't just swayed and wooed away by a bunch of lies that this was a deep, deep wrestle. And Mormon's from my experience, can they tend to dismiss somebody's journey who's a Mormon, who's questioning. It can be easily dismissed and judged. And they don't want to engage. Like my family, as loving as they've been, nobody's asked me mm. my story in twenty-seven years. Mm. Until my book came out. And then my littlest sister. Asked me if I would share my story with her, and so there's a lot of fear about what might this mm-hmm. if they hear the story. I think mm-hmm.
0: there,
1: there's also probably some judgment. So um, yeah, but my parents and I have all been very committed to the ship.
0: Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I, I'm kind of curious. Have, do you know where Gary is today? And Does he know about this book and what's happened with you?
1: Yeah, Gary needed to write. He needed to give permission for me to write with Harvest. Is mm-hmm. our story, and so he okay. did consent. I've been in touch with his sister on and off throughout the years, and so she mm-hmm. connected me to Gary. And he's in. He lives in Idaho, and we are not in close contact. But mm-hmm. um, like, there's deep affection in me. I feel toward Gary. I'm so thankful mm-hmm. for him in my life.
0: Mm-hmm. Now this book coming out also, I understand your parents are actually going through the book, Aunt Faye.
1: My dad read it over Christmas. Well, mm-hmm. he started it over Christmas there. And mm-hmm. my mom, I was in Utah for some speaking engagements in February. And she shared with me that she's being really brave and taking a dip into the book one page at a time. Mm. So that was very courageous.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I'm taking it. It's still your hope that someday the scales are going to far from your parents' eyes.
1: Oh, I long for them to enter into the rest mm. and freedom of Jesus, <laughs> the biblical God. I just, they mm. work so hard to be worthy and they don't have to like jesus mm-hmm. has done it for them and i long for them to enter mm-hmm. into his rest
0: isn't it you also bet a lot of christians seem to have that exact same struggle though
1: yes yes it's very sad and it's very real. I have a friend who's a counselor, and she and my own therapist have, been, have given my book out to some clients who are Christians, and they just aren't able for some reason to enter into the rest and the freedom that Jesus offers.
0: Hi, this is Mike Lacona. I've had the privilege of being on the Deeper Waters podcast with Nick Peters several times over the past few years. Nick is one of the finest interviewers on the internet today. He's well-read and asks the type of questions that bring valuable insights for his listeners. So if you want to get great information from top-notch scholars in a concise package, the Deeper Waters podcast with Nick Peters is where you need to be. I think there can be danger in some ways that for you, you grew up in a system where you heard works, 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 good enough, good enough, good enough mm-hmm. all your life. And then when you hear how Christianity is so radically different, way to really see the differences. But I think for a lot of people that grew up in a Christian culture and one that wasn't very informed mm-hmm. or believed, they've grown up and they've learned that what they believe is kind of normal but the radicalness of christianity mm-hmm. hasn't really changed them really. I mean, you say oh yeah we believe all the all these doctrines yeah yeah and they don't stop to think about how incredible it is i mean i've heard some of my fellow pros may write some well, you just went and listed some of the things that we believe as christians you probably say you gotta be nuts to believe some of that stuff. <laughs> and, and if there wasn't evidence for uh-huh. it, they'd be absolutely right. We would be nuts to believe some of this stuff.
1: Right? Yes. Yes, I think that what I, as I grow up in Christianity, and I'm obviously living in America, and some mm-hmm. of my education with Red for Christian Spiritual Formation the last several years has brought. To my help, me to see is that we have a very watered down Christianity where this life mm-hmm. to Jesus is not the rule of life in our Christianity mm-hmm. in America, and we've reduced God to do's and don'ts rather than this intimate transforming relationship that. Why wouldn't you want to apprentice yourself to this God? Because he's mm-hmm. so, his love is captivating and transforming. And I don't think we have a vision of this, this community mm-hmm. of love, um, that we are designed to be a part of and to bring his kingdom to this earth. So, or help spread the kingdom.
0: Now. Now, I'm kind of curious, though, even after all these years, do you seriously, you know, vestiges of Mormonism in you that you've worked out? That's such a good question, Nick. Mm-hmm. What
1: surfaced for me when I got the book contract from Harvest House, and I didn't think I would get a book contract on the proposal for five years. I didn't want to write this book. I was terrified of the what might happen, all the what might happens relationally with my family mm-hmm. if I were to write my story. So my agent found me after I'd shared my story at a small gathering and asked me if I would write my story and he would represent me. So God just brought all of this to me. I never, it wouldn't have been a thought, at least not until my parents passed me. And so anyway, but God keep, kept making the invitations very clear. He wanted me to keep writing. So it took me five years to write my proposal for many reasons. We had adopted two girls from Ethiopia and we had three biological kids when we did who were between 10 and There was a great deal of chaos in our lives as a result when I got, when my agent found me. So anyway, I um, didn't think I'd get a publisher. And when I did, I was just t- I tell my parents um, about this book offer and Okay, so remind me of your question again. I'm getting scattered.
0: Are there any vestiges of Mormonism you still see in you even after years of living a Christian life?
1: Okay, so when I began writing my story, the first three months were really traumatic because what I was unearthing as I seeped in Mormon doctrine and worked (laughs) through my story in light of Mormon doctrine, how still pervaded my life with god and how much my view of god like the the lie that would keep coming to my mind every day all day long is god's going to hang me out to dry and that wasn't a lie that i was very aware of in my life but as i was writing this book and this project was so big and so much felt like it was at stake relationally mm-hmm. that was the perpetual thought all day long, every day that I had to face off with. And that's seeping in more. As I researched and writing my story, it was kind of like the perfect storm to reveal, bring into the light how this shame still pervaded my life, even though I thought I knew I was free of it.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: shame for writing my story. I'm the bad daughter, I'm the bad sister. Oh, I mean, so much. I was tortured by it and so part of this journey that's been so kind is that he's just been releasing me more deeply than I ever knew possible from this false view of him which he's the god who's gonna hang me out to dry and cut me off good and the shame that still resides Some days with me. So, yeah, it's been 27 years of walking with the biblical Jesus, and that happened. Mm
0: -hmm. So, what are some things you think we need in mind? We're just sitting at homes one day, and there's a knock on the door, and we open up, and there's the Mormons right there. Mm -hmm. What do do we need to keep in mind?
1: Well, first, offer them hospitality. Mm -hmm. They're so hospitable and hospitality is such a significant part of their culture, and I think to offer them hospitality back is really important, and to Mm. just be really lavish with your love, but then also to be a way of redefining terms like salvation and eternal life. Really important. In the back of my book, there's a very simple um, coaching on how and some of the terms to be aware of that's not too extensive and I think really helpful. But also I would just stick with their plan of salvation. My, my desire when the missionaries come to my door is to establish what biblical Christianity is and how it's different from Mormonism and just get a Mormon to see this is the biblical plan of salvation. It's not the same as the Mormon plan of salvation. And when I'm doing that, them to share their plan of salvation, um, I get to share, we talk through the biblical plan of salvation, we can establish this is, this isn't the same thing. And, but before that, I always like to ask them if they would share their testimony with me. And that's mm-hmm. where i That's what I would do with a neighbor or any Mormon in your life, because testimony, their personal testimony is the most important thing that they possess. And it is what truth. And so they all have these experiences that have come together to forge this personal testimony. And so it's very natural for Mormons to share testimony. They do it once a month in their church service. They have mm-hmm. fast and testimony meeting and my time where they bear testimony. And so the testimony is the plumb line for truth. So I ask them to share their testimony and they always are very willing to do that. And then I share my testimony and then I get to offer, uh, okay, we both really believe with all of our hearts and our minds that what we believe is true. We both have this testimony to back it up. So there must be something other than personal testimony in order to determine truth. And so let's look at plans of salvation. How do we determine truth if we have to bring in something other than testimony? So then I just stick with plans of salvation.
0: Mm -hmm. I remember when, before I made uh, a roommate, we were, I was going to a seminary. He was going to a Bible college. Both had a deep interest in apologetics. Mm -hmm. And we had Mormons come by. And for us, whether it was Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, we always referred to us kind of like the revolving door. Going around because mm-hmm. I kept having to change them out on us over and over. Yes. and we <laughs> had this rule set up that when these people came by Mormons, which I was, whichever one wants, we'd go out to say, Litter Caesars, pick up one of the five dollar pizzas, get things like mm. Gatorade and, and or something like that, come by, and ha- and have eat our meal together. We'd all share it, I and love we knew that. because these. Guys remember their mission, their money is extremely tight. They yeah. don't get to have good meals very often, so we treated them to one, no charge, and we were to form good friendships.
1: I love them. that.
0: Yeah, there <laughs> was one time when, yeah, they they called us and said, "Hey, we can't come to our the there's something wrong with it," and I'd said where are you at? And they told me, I said, okay, I'm coming to get you.
1: And oh. that's exactly
0: what I did. And as I say, while I went to get them, I had pretty much a captive to share Christianity with. Wow. So, And what but, was
1: that like?
0: It, it was very really nice. And we even had one time where we took them out to, uh, to a, a Jewish dairy that was near our apartment complex, and mm-hmm. to this day we still think it's absolutely hysterical that here you have these <laughs> two, these four guys walking in to a Jewish get area, two of them men, and sitting down having a meal together. Right. And one of these guys had been in the position we are very sure he was doubting a lot, wow. and there one guy who'd come and he was. Knew it was his first time, and he was just visiting us. And he walked in, and he saw the game systems that we had, mainly my games. Uh-huh. Uh, my roommate and I were both big gamers, and all he could talk about were like old video games, Super Nintendo, this, all this stuff. I mean, for, for the whole meal, that's all he was talking about the whole time. And so, as wow. we we're heading back, my roommate realizes, since we're walking, that he's still going on and on about these games. So we're whatever, but he kind casually leads this guy away and what's going on i'm left with a guy who we think is doubting and i'm able to, wow. to talk about all our questions and we still say yeah i'm pretty sure they got a really good talking to when they got back
1: i bet it yes yeah.
0: about the other ever- very mm-hmm.
1: yeah. very controlling system
0: yeah i the other thing i give as a piece of advice, and this is one for guys, and I say it's the opposite for women. Is that you know if it's for sisters that come by, he said, mm-hmm. meet in a public place and have your mm. me- have your meetings there instead.
1: Mm. Yeah, but, that's kind.
0: I I do like how you said you know and what their story is first, because when the rules I understand communication is, if there's anything people like to talk about, it's themselves.
1: Yes. And people mm-hmm. aren't very curious today about mm-hmm. other people. And so once all I have to do is ask one question and all they talk about themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's great. And it's not just Mormons. You know, it's anyone you ask their story. I think it's a great first entry point mm-hmm. to be curious about people.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there a place to ask Mormons hard questions about the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith or something like that?
1: Absolutely. Every conversation eventually needs to go there mm-hmm. because a Mormon needs to wrestle with that. And mm-hmm. so it's just not forward. but mm-hmm. like you said, always holding out who this biblical God is and the mm-hmm. love of Jesus for them. Um, so yeah, I think with missionary so much of evangelism and talking to people about faith is just being in tune with where the spirit has is guiding you in each conversation, I would Mm -hmm. say. And like, I'll just pray that God invite me, let me participate in the conversation you're having with this person. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that's kind of my posture. And so I think there's a lot of mystery to our conversations, but we need to talk about historicity we need to talk about authenticity of a prophet um that though was not what we first talked about like Mm -hmm. who is the biblical jesus he's far more compelling than any other jesus that i've heard of Mm
0: -hmm. and i I think we should also realize when we're talking to mormons we're not just asking them to change their mind on their religion Mm -hmm. we're pretty much asking them to give up and lifestyle
1: yes and that's what motivated me to write out of zion is that i want people to understand you can't this mormonism is not just a religion mormonism is a culture Mm -hmm. and the losses and what it costs someone to start questioning mormonism is Mm -hmm. great Mm -hmm. and so to enter compassionately and very tenderly into those conversations in person along the way, rather than just some heartless debate to thrash their faith system.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, one other thing I think to keep in mind is that, you know, there might be a Bob's approach of, you pray to Satan, but generally, that doesn't work where I think one of the other terms we should probably avoid when talking with Mormonism, Mormons, whether it's true or not. It.
1: Yes. Yes. And so many radio interviews that I've done since my book released, um, the host will just use that term in passing. And they even asked one interviewer, one host before the day before I was going on the show, I sent her an email and I just said, Hey, this is, this is the cost of that word. It will be an immediate door slam if there happens to be German listening. And this isn't, this isn't what I want to associate with this term because it's not, it doesn't create a bridge. And she canceled me and she was, absolutely offended that I would ask her to um, edit any of her terminology. And so I like how Ravi Zacharias talks mm. about the word cult. I think he does a brilliant job. There's like a 10 minute video on YouTube and he just talks about it as an insider word, that it's not mm. a word we use with outsiders, so to speak, that this is for the classroom. And he defines the cult as, when a cult as Christians, it's a faith system which has redefined the biblical Jesus and taken away the finished work of Christ. And Mormonism mm-hmm. definitely has done both of those th- things and fits in those categories, but they don't have those terms and they don't know they've done those things. And so when they hear the word cult, they're thinking like a David Koresh, type
0: mm.
1: craziness and yeah, take great offense. It's an immediate door slam.
0: Yeah. I, I think thus far in our interview here, I haven't used the term caught except to ask this question.
1: Yes. Mm. And I've been very grateful for that.
0: Now, what do you think we should say if the Mormons, Hey, how would you like to come to our church?
1: Oh, I had a reader actually reach out to me who had read my book and she has some people in her some her life and one of the women had asked her to come to church and hear her give a talk. And she said, so I kindly declined. And I said, well, I would actually encourage you to go mm-hmm. and you'll get to experience her culture and hear her language and hear the, cult, the doctrine live mm-hmm. and it won't be textbook for you anymore. It'll be a very relational mm-hmm. connection. And so she ended up going, and then her Mormon friend offered to her afterwards, well, now to should come to your church. Yep. And yeah, I am all about building bridges. I encourage everybody to go mm-hmm. go to a Mormon church service. The door is wide open and experience this culture and the doctrine. It's interesting because... My kids, when they were younger, didn't fill that all the theological differences of Mormonism and Christianity. We just mm-hmm. taught them Christian doctrine mostly. And when they were, but we did not take them to the Mormon church much when we uh but when they were, oh, getting into their preteen ages, I wanted mm-hmm. them to know the culture, experience the culture, know how their family worships, etc. So, We occasionally will go to church services. It's called their plan of salvation, the great plan of happiness. Mm. And it's all about happiness. And I had not told my kids that. My son was about 12 years old and we were in a church service. So it was just long. And we walked out those doors afterwards and Keegan said, wow, that was sure a lot about happiness. Mm -hmm. And he caught it in one church service. And they are so honed in. At their plan of salvation and teaching it. They do and they do it wonderfully, really. The mm-hmm. indoctrination is brilliant. So I think it's really important to experience that.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you'd said some about how you, the term is a turnoff to Mormon listeners. There are some Mormon listeners here who've been very brave and they've sat through this whole interview so far. Mm-hmm. And you've only got like a couple minutes here. What is the one thing you'd like? To say to a Mormon listener now?
1: I would say Jesus came to set us free and the biblical God is a God of love who has always been love and he's crazy about you and he sent Jesus you in his community of love in his kingdom and all that's required of you is that you would place your trust in his love that Jesus is the only could be worthy
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: of getting you into the kingdom. And that if you do that, you'll be clothed in his righteousness and that this God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He -hmm. will cloak you in his love and community and you will be with him forever. And so enter into his rest and the freedom that he he designed you for.
0: Mm-hmm. That's very great here. That's good advice. And um, unfortunately, we don't have really have enough time left for another question. So I'm just going to start wrapping things up. But he said it's been great having you on here. Do you have a blog, a website, an email, a way people can, can get in touch if they want to find out more about you? Yes.
1: My website is lisabrockman.me, M-E. And I have a Almost weekly blog, but mm-hmm. I'm not struggling with poison ivy. I have a weekly blog. And yes, so I would love you to visit my website. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram.
0: Uh, for those who don't know, Lisa's been a trooper. She's had poison ivy. I greatly empathize with her. I'm highly allergic to it. I am sorry. me a picture beforehand. And then some other <laughs> text I've on Facebook Messenger, I said, Nisa, I'm not looking up a picture I'm entirely squeamish but I am allergic to poison ivy I have to get the shots when I get it I sympathize everyone my- oh
1: yeah you got it I'm allergic too apparently
0: mm-hmm. do you have uh, any final words for Devil waters audience today
1: well I'm just so thankful for your time Nick it's mm-hmm. been a blessing and I'm so thankful for your minutes thank you for having me
0: thank you and if you Get another book out, you're free to come back here again. If there's anything I can do for you, let me know. Thank you. And i like to let me go ahead and get up here. I I neglected to do this, sir, but I always try and tell my guests about the books that are on sale. Because the book is out of It is a very readable book. Very easy to go through. Very enjoyable. And it, it is very much like the book. Uh, seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. So right now, I'm <laughs> looking up the price. On Kindar, on Amazon, at the time of this recording, it's $9.99. Pection is 13 And Nisa, thank you for coming on. I do hope we'll see you back here again sometime.
1: Thanks, Nick. It's been a blessing.
0: And I'd like to remind everyone that next week, we're going to have Ronnie Canberra on talking about his book, World Views and the Problem of Evil. Now, I am Nick Peters, I affirm the virgin birth, and I am signing off.